Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. McAllen and Tully are inside Leviathan. McAllen has wandered the streets and alleys of the massive underwater city to meet artists and scientists from the last thousand years of human history. She and Evangeline visited the painters that create a different breathtaking sky for Leviathan every new day. But the return to Leviathan has not been smooth for all. Harlequin has been accused of planting a deadly computer virus within the Leviathan mainframe. This virus threatens to corrupt the operational subroutines of Leviathan, as well as disable the pressure shield that keeps the city from being engulfed by the deadly pressure of the deep ocean. Banu leads the charge against Harlequin and reveals that in planting the virus, Harlequin betrayed Evangeline to create an alibi covering his tracks. But halfway across the world, a desperate race across the Himalayas is taking shape. Whit Roberts, Miley, and Oberlin St. Clair have reluctantly agreed to team up in order to summit Mount Chenglung. Miley seeks to answer the recent call of her father who disappeared six years ago. Whit Roberts needs to reach the mountain in order to fulfill Black Door's mysterious extraction mission, but they are not alone. After surviving an assassination attempt, Senshin and Nathaniel are hot on their trail, having discovered a map indicating Mount Chenglung as their destination. Senshin has lost contact with McAllen Orsall and hopes that answers as to her whereabouts might be found somewhere in the deadly mountains of Tibet. The question is, what else will they find when they get there? And now, Chapter 24, Showdown at Mount Chenlung, Part 1. How much further? Three more passes over the left ridge! That'll take hours. We're gonna lose the sun in 90 minutes. Then hike faster. I'm the one with the sprained ankle, bitch. No regrets. The setting scarlet sun struck the majestic face of Shishapangma Mountain in Tibet's southwest Himalayas and bathed the icy mountain in fading amber light. Whit Roberts, Miley, and Oberlin St. Clair had been trekking since four in the morning earlier that day and now possessed neither the strength nor the inclination to regard the hulking mountain with anything more than a passing glance. 
Four Tibetan Sherpas dutifully trudged behind them, carrying packs almost as tall as they were. But despite the warm red sun being reflected off the 26,000-foot mountain, no one in the party felt warm. The temperature high of the day had only reached 15 degrees Fahrenheit, and it had been steadily dropping over the past few hours. The Sherpas murmured nervously to each other. Look, I'm not trying to be a union leader here, but I've got the feeling we're not going to get much more out of the porters today. They've been hiking for 12 hours without much of a break. I don't think Oberlin, they can- Oberlin, when I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. We agreed back in Tingri that I was running this stage of the operation. We did, but I'm just telling you that I think the Sherpas are also agreeing that you're being a complete idiot by pushing too far in a single day when we're losing the light. Fine. I'll handle this. Whit marched over to the lead Sherpa. You, Tenzing, are Tingri Sherpa men getting tired? Are Tingri Sherpa men strong? We are strong men, Sobo, but we must camp soon. No, we camp at Chitri Plateau, near Shenglong. But, Sobo, Chitri too far for today. Camp now is better. I thought Tingri Sherpa men were strong. I thought they were brave. There is a good camp in Chitri. No. No, Tsobo, please. This is not good. Very bad. Men are tired now. Not safe. Good men, but too far today. We not stop. Get very cold now. With no camp. You die. We die. Very bad. Please. Tenzing. Tenzing. I go back to Tingri. I tell everyone that Tingri men are not strong. Tingri men are scared of the mountain, scared of the Yeti. Maybe other climbers not come to Tingri for their Sherpa. Maybe they go to Lhasa, maybe Kathmandu, not Tingri. Because Tingri men are scared. No, Tingri men are strong, not scared. Then Tingri men hike to Chitri Plateau now, yes? The lead Sherpa stared at Whit Roberts in disgust and then turned to confer with his men. Three minutes later, he returned. Yes, Tsopo. We go now, Chitri. Men not scared of mountain. Good. Good, strong Tingri men. Yes. Whit patted the Sherpa leader on the shoulder and then turned to continue hiking north. This is a mistake. You're going to blow out their legs trying to get to Chitri. There's no way they'll be able to haul all the gear to the summit of Mount Changlung tomorrow. Trust me, that isn't going to be a problem. Well, one of those Sherpas is already limping worse than you are, so I beg to differ. I think it is going to be a problem. If my father doesn't... I said it isn't going to be a problem. Now shut up and keep... Keep moving. Miley seethed as she yearned to drive one of the survival knives she carried right through the base of Wit's skull. The seven of them trudged upwards for another five hours, shivering as the temperature dropped another 30 degrees. Oberlin's right hand ached where his pinky finger used to be. Miley approached him from behind and put her hand on his shoulder. There's a light coming from the other side of the ridge. It must be another camp, another party we're meeting up with. This area is pretty remote. It wouldn't be another climbing party, not this time of year. Then it must be trouble. Still have the HK. Loaded and strapped in my shoulder holster. You still have the Glock? Loaded and freezing against my love handles. Good. That's good. Miley reached out and took Oberlin's hand in her own. Hey, Oberlin, I'm... I'm glad you're here. But before Oberlin could respond, Miley had already turned and was hiking quickly towards the light coming off the ridge. Oberlin sighed and trudged after her as the team worked their way over the final ridge. When they reached the summit, Miley and Oberlin were astonished by what they saw before them. Four massive angular black pylons stood over 20 feet high, embedded deeply into the snow. Each one featured LED spotlights at the top that illuminated the immediate area surrounding the pylon. Whit Roberts walked in between Oberlin and Miley and put his hand on each of their shoulders. What? What the hell are those? 
Those are our reinforcements. What the hell do you mean? Reinforcements? See for yourself. Wit stuck his arm out and pushed a small button on his wristwatch. Within seconds, all four pylons slowly split themselves open like malevolent orchids. The temperature inside the pylons was clearly warmer than the icy surroundings of the Himalayas because steam poured out from the openings in the pylons. Oberlin strained to see what was inside, but the vapor was still too thick. He did notice something else, though. A sharp, foul odor hit his nose that caused him to scrunch up his face. It was the smell of decay and burnt hair that was triggering Oberlin's gag reflex. But before he could even think about throwing up, he felt four large tremors in the ground. There's seismic activity in the area. Is that normal? We should move the camp to a better... It's not seismic activity. It's them. It's who? Oberlin St. Clair meet the Enforcers. Out of the steam erupting from each of the black pylons, four gargantuan and gruesome creatures emerged, resembling men in only the most rudimentary form. Each enforcer stood almost 12 feet tall and at least 8 feet wide and appeared to be comprised entirely of muscle and malice. In the artificial light of the flood lamps, Oberlin could see their skin color was an unnatural red, like a grotesque sunburn that covered their entire bodies. Against the pale white of the alpine snow, the four enforcers resembled hideous walking bloodstains that seemed chillingly unnatural. The surface of their skin was covered with bulging veins and the cruel dents of new muscles. The body of of the behemoth closest to Oberlin rippled and pulsed as his thick muscle tendons flexed rapidly. They were shirtless, wearing only dark military pants and enormous alpine boots. Two thick cables were attached on each side of the enforcer's necks intravenously, leading back into the pods. It looked incredibly painful, and even at this distance, Oberlin could make out small pockets of pus oozing from where the cables met the skin. But what unnerved Oberlin the most was that despite all of this, their eyes and faces seemed completely blank. Miley gasped and pulled back, drawing her pistol for a headshot. What in the Holy Lord's name are those? A very secret project that door number 12 has been working on for the past few years. They're actually humans that have been injected with an advanced form of human growth hormone and simultaneously subjected to radiation similar to that found in a nuclear reactor. You're lying. That would kill someone in days. Not as long as the plutonium rods inside the reactor had also been exposed to a massive surge of alien stars stone energy, the same energy that gives the immortals their longevity. We at Black Door just decided to use that healing factor within the Starstone to more productive ends. Why would anybody want to do that to themselves? The Enforcer program was staffed with what I like to call forced volunteers. But not to worry, their minds were rendered completely blank before the procedure began. Then what use would door number 12 have with such a mindless hulk? Oh, I didn't say they were mindless. They're just being controlled by someone else's mind. Wit brought his watch closer to his face. Jason, this is Wit. We've reached base camp. You can decouple the enforcers from their drop pods. Moving at precisely the same time, moving precisely the same way, each enforcer reached up with both hands and ripped out the two cables attached to their necks. The heavy cables fell to the ground, and a thick yellow fluid slowly leaked out of them onto the white snow. The enforcers took several steps forward to stand within a few feet of the expedition. 
The Sherpas stared dumbfounded and terrified as the enforcers all turned their heads in unison to stare back at them. Now that they were finally able to make out what the enforcers looked like, the four men screamed in terror. Wit approached the two closest enforcers and strained his neck to look up at each of them. The enforcers merely stared blankly ahead. You two, take care of the Sherpas, but do not damage their packs. We need that gear to create a secure link when we reach Shenglong. Bring the packs back to us here in base camp, undamaged, when you're finished dismissing the Sherpas. Go. you doing? You've got to stop them. Those are our Sherpas. They're human beings. You can't just... I just did. Wit turned to the two remaining enforcers. Okay, we have just 15 hours until extraction. That doesn't give us much time. We need to get the pods reassembled into cargo mode. So when the other two get back with our gear, make sure they get it loaded into the belly of each pod and ready to roll in 30 minutes. Got it? Get moving. Wit, 15 hours will never be enough time to summit Mount Changlong. Relax, Miley. The two enforcers that stayed in camp quickly walked over to the drop pods and began to manipulate them in a surprisingly dexterous manner that Oberlin would never have thought the brutes to be capable of. Each black pod weighed well over a thousand pounds and was completely open in half, like a giant oval clamshell, where the top half was identical to the bottom half. The enforcers picked up the pods as if they were children's toys. They brought the four drop pods together and then laid the first one on the ground so that both its top and bottom were open to the sky. The enforcers then picked up a second open pod and arranged it so that it opened towards the ground. By placing the second pod on top of the first, a single large contoured superpod was created. To Oberlin's fascination, the pieces snapped together like Lego, and he was impressed at the elegance of the engineering that must have gone into it. When the other enforcers get back, we'll start the ascent to the summit. Wit, this is crazy. We're exhausted, hungry, and the temperature will drop to 50 below tonight. Summiting tonight is a suicide mission. (laughs) I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that summiting should be the most relaxing part of our journey. Wit nodded towards the two enforcers that were now attaching straps to each of the two large superpods that had been created by combining the original four drop pods. Thick metal rods were rigged on each side of the pods, allowing the two enforcers to step towards the front and the back, thereby picking up the large pod like a gurney. They then placed the large pods back on the ground and opened the tops of them to reveal a small cushioned seating area contained inside. What the hell are you talking about? Get in. The Enforcers are the new Sherpas, and they're going to carry us up Mount Shenglong in these pods, completely protected from the elements and in a great deal of comfort. I suggest you and Oberlin settle into the first pod together, but save your strength. I promise you are going to need it. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. 
From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hello, Harlequin. Comfortable? Benu entered a small scientific examining room, located deep within the bowels of Leviathan Cathedral. The two guards that stood at the door stiffened as his white robe flowed past them. Jars containing strange jelly-like creatures sat dimly illuminated on top of the glass shelves built into the wall. Some pulsed hypnotically, while others just floated lifelessly in the clear vessels that held them. Opposite the glass shelves was a long silver table, coated with a glimmering sapphire enamel. The beautiful table reflected the soft light of the room, but its luminosity was compromised by the fact that Harlequin now lay on the ungiving table. He was tightly bound by four thick leather straps at his hands and feet, and a strip of barbed wire across the top of his head. Your sense of hospitality continues to be commensurate with your attractiveness and ability to satisfy a woman. If you think I'm hideous, wait until you see what I end up doing to you. Can we just get on with this? Hmm. Leave us. The two guards quickly complied. Benu's body was positioned towards one of the larger jars containing a clear bell-shaped jelly. It had tiny cilia around its fringe, yet possessed a distinct red digestive tube that was clearly visible through its translucent body. He appeared to be examining it closely, but Harlequin knew too well that Benu was actually staring directly at him. Do you remember this room? We used it to dissect and study the animals we found living here at the bottom of the earth. We used to think that the creatures here in the Marianas Trench were the deepest life forms in existence. Then we started digging in the earth. I seem to recall you attempting some bizarre experiments with the specimens you collected. Genetic manipulation was one of your specialities. A bit ethically challenged, were we? Trying to turn men into fish? Tiny jellies that could live inside a human body? Such a shame Evangeline shut down your little playroom before you could really let that perverted mind of yours get itself off. Good thing you managed to pin all the nasty stuff on some poor lab assistant who never... Yes. I wonder who tipped off Evangeline. Oh, I haven't the slightest idea. Yes, well, in the meantime, I've managed to find others that are not so narrow-minded. Others that share my passion for experimentation and aren't so constrained by the diminutive perspective of mortal man. I know it was you, Benu. I snuck out of Evangeline's room as soon as I saw you on her security monitors, before you had them altered. You programmed the virus into the mainframe. You knew I was so close to discovering you. You fucking framed me, didn't you? It's going to be such a shame to have to inform Evangeline about your unexpected demise during these interrogations. Who knew you were so weak, so fragile? I would think a God-fearing man like yourself might have a bit more fortitude. Is this the only way you could face me? Having me tied down on a table, alone, without any witnesses? Hmm, I prefer it this way, yes. She never loved you. She only felt sorry for you. You're just a pawn, and pawns get sacrificed. Harlequin winced at the familiarity of the words. He couldn't move his arms or legs, and now fully realized that he was completely at the mercy of Benu. There was no negotiation, no bargaining. He had nothing that Banu could possibly want. 
It was the most unfamiliar and unpleasant feeling that Harlequin had experienced in centuries. Benu, let's speak seriously for a moment. You can kill me now, but it won't get you anywhere. I can, literally. We both know damn well Leviathan isn't where you want to be. I can give you more money than you would ever know what to do with. I can give you women, power and respect back on the surface. This is a rare chance, Benu, one that I've never offered anyone else. Benu stopped what he was doing and slowly turned to face Harlequin. His hands rose to his face and trembled slightly as he pulled back the white hood that obscured his face. Deep, jagged burns were scored into his face and neck. The flesh was still blackened and discolored, and yet gray and black lifeless in other parts. His right side was more scarred and pitted, and hung loosely from the misshapen bones of his face. His left side was drawn painfully taut, and glistened with perspiration. His eyes were pitch black, and seemed located in all parts of his face. The great fire of Somnatok, one thousand years ago, had destroyed what was once a handsome man, and transformed him into an abomination. Harlequin couldn't stop himself from gasping quietly, and pulling his head away from the sight of Banu. There is absolutely nothing I want from you. Banu turned to a table off on the side, covered with dusty, neglected instruments, and picked up a long metal rod with small holes surrounding the slightly flared tip. He pushed a button at the bottom of the rod, and a vicious blue flame erupted from the top of it. Benu adjusted a small dial on the side, and the spewing flame tightened to a white hot blaze extending just three inches from the tip. Fire is useful for so many things. It warms, it protects, it nourishes, but most of all, it purifies. And you, Harlequin, have become so very tainted. Benu, no, stop! Please don't do this. Please it's don't... It's the hands that do the thief's work, don't they? Which hand is your stealing hand, Harlequin? Benu brought the flame closer to Harlequin's face. Benu, please! Which hand first stroked Evangeline's hair, seducing her with your lies? Which hand gave Sension the bank account numbers in the Cayman and Cook Islands that funded his grand disappearing act? Which hand Harlequin. I said which hand. Please don't, Benu. I beg you. I'll do anything. Yes. The sad part is you actually would. Well, historically, it was considered unwise to trust those that are left-handed. And since you've proven yourself to be supremely untrustworthy, let's start with your left. No, no, don't! Benu swiftly brought the blowtorch down on Harlequin's left hand. The skin just below Harlequin's left pinky instantly liquefied, filling the room with the noxious smell of burnt flesh. His entire hand was engulfed in flame, and Harlequin's head dug into the tight barbed wire surrounding his scalp, sending streams of blood into his eye. Benu extinguished the flame and then turned to smile at Harlequin. The heat of the torch is so great that it actually cauterizes the wound, so that you don't bleed out on me. It gives me great pleasure to tell you that you'll be conscious for quite a while, old friend. You... You, you fucking bastard. You're a monster. You'll never destroy Leviathan. I'll tell Evangeline what you've done. I'll tell her it was you that planted the virus. You've been the villain all along, hiding close to her for a thousand years. An impotent pet. You know, I almost overlooked the most important tool that a thief like you uses. Your deadliest weapon. It's one that has long been in need of purification. Benu turned back to his table of instruments and picked up a set of rusty-looking pliers. It's your tongue, isn't it? It's what you use to tell all of your lies. <coughs> lies about love, lies about loyalty, lies about whose side you're really on. But you and I have always known the truth, haven't we? You have always been on your own side. No, you wouldn't, you sadistic pervert. You wouldn't. Listen to the filth that comes out of your mouth. Let's 
Let's cleanse your palate with a bit of heat, shall we? Banu brought his burnt face close to Harlequin's and roughly clenched his nose shut. Harlequin thrashed back and forth in his restraint, but it was no use. He was too exhausted from his injuries to last more than two minutes before his mouth burst open in desperate need of air. Banu quickly jammed his fingers inside Harlequin's mouth and placed two sets of retractable metal clamps inside his jaw, forcing his mouth completely open. Harlequin tried to summon all the strength to close his mouth. He strained against the clamps when suddenly his bicuspid snapped in half, sending a new jolt of pain through Harlequin's body. There now. Banu opened the pliers and shoved them inside of Harlequin's mouth. With his other hand, Banu reignited the flame, sending a nauseating wave of fear through every nerve in Harlequin's body. Banu clamped the rusty pliers down on Harlequin's tongue and squeezed hard, drawing blood around the edges of the pliers. The pain was so great that Harlequin felt his body go limp, but his eyes couldn't leave the white, hot flame getting closer to his tongue. His eyebrows started to singe and his eyelids instinctively dropped down to protect the sensitive tissue. The torch had now dried all the moisture from Harlequin's tongue and mouth, and he began choking from the toxic fumes from the chemical blowtorch. Banu's eyes widened in anticipation as he lowered the flame closer into Harlequin's mouth, closer to his tongue, when suddenly... The flame of the blowtorch abruptly fizzled out and died. Banu grimaced about the poor timing of the fuel runoff, while Harlequin released a massive sigh of relief. Damn it! Well, it appears that someone got an undeserved bit of good fortune. But not to worry, Harlequin. I'm sure the tip of the torch is still hot enough to get your attention. He then ripped the blowtorch away, taking off bits of Harlequin's tongue that had become fused with the metal. Now, now, don't try to speak. Everything will be fine. I have plenty more liquid oxygen in a storage chamber. Just one level down. I promised you a great party, and a great party we shall have. Just try and stay put. I'll be back in less than five minutes. Try not to go anywhere. Banu placed the blowtorch back on the metal tray and walked out of the chamber. The instant that Banu closed the heavy door behind him, Harlequin exploded violently, thrashing against the leather straps that bit cruelly into his skin. My left hand. I've got to pull with my left hand. Life depends on it. Harlequin had noticed it as soon as Banu had set his left hand ablaze. The leather strap on his left hand was burned and damaged. It's the weakest bond. I have to try to break it. I've got to pull. But every raw nerve in Harlequin's hand told him not to pull. His burnt skin pressed against the scorched leather, causing fresh blood to ooze from his wounds. He felt the strap dig into his flesh that Banu had literally liquefied moments ago. But he knew that only moments remained before Banu would return to this torture chamber. And when he did, Harlequin knew that he would finish what he started and kill him in the slowest, most painful way possible. The pretense of extracting information was over. This was an execution. I saw you at the central computer terminal that night, Ben. I know that you've been plotting against Evangeline for centuries, waiting and biding your time. It was you. This is your virus blowing through the Vyathan's AI. The leather strap binding Harlequin's left hand ripped halfway through. It still held him fast against the cold metal table, but it was loosening. Almost there. I can't think about the pain or the damage they're causing. Blood now gushed over the leather strap. Harlequin pulled and pulled and yanked, but nothing. The strap that was ripped halfway would give no further. But the more Harlequin pulled, the more blood flowed freely from his damaged hand. The leather was now completely soaked in it, and a small red pool had formed on the floor, dripping from Harlequin's burnt hand. The leather was now so wet that Harlequin's left hand could wiggle faintly, moving around, twisting slightly. A little more. A little more. Oh, come on. Just please, please. Oh, oh my God, thank you. 
Harlequin's badly damaged hand managed to slip through the blood-soaked leather strap and was now free. Harlequin didn't dare allow himself to look at it, to see the terrible damage Banu had inflicted upon him that he had made worse through his struggle to escape. But his hand was now free, and with the two fingers he could still move, his left hand freed his right hand. In seconds, Harlequin undid the remaining restraints that held him down. He sprang to his feet, but discovered that he was far weaker than expected. Harlequin was now aware of something hitting his arm repeatedly. Confused, he looked down to see that his entire left arm was trembling. And when he finally mustered the courage to look at his mangled left hand, he was shocked and disgusted to see what was actually left. Oh no. Stop it. Survive. You must survive. Banner will be back any second. Have to escape quickly. Viathan will go on lockdown as soon as he realizes I'm free. There's only one way to get out. Must must do do the unexpected. unexpected. Harlequin used the metal table for purchase as he struggled back to his feet. He grabbed a nearby cloth and wrapped it painfully around his left hand. He ran to the door, but quickly paused to contemplate setting a booby trap to incapacitate Banu. There's no time for vengeance. I have to survive. I have to escape. Even if the way out kills me. Meanwhile, several levels below, Banu sat in a hidden office observing Harlequin's escape on a holographic screen in front of him. Yes, that's it, Harlequin. Run. Run for your life. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. What kind of dump is this? No room service, no vending machines. Where the hell is the guy supposed to go to get a bite to eat? Some immortal paradise. Kind of crappy if you ask me. Captain Jeffrey Tully walked down one of the wide central boulevards of Leviathan City. He passed some different crowds of immortals dressed from various eras of human history. 
Some gave him a passing glance. Others failed to notice him at all as they went about their daily business. It's like a goddamn costume party here. That guy looks like one of the village people. After walking for a few minutes, Tully veered off the main boulevard and wandered down one of the smaller avenues to the left. The narrow cobblestone street wound tightly around assorted statues, fountains, and even an Egyptian obelisk. As the smaller street soon became a mere alleyway, Tully's treasure-hunting instincts began to kick in. The height of the neighboring buildings casted long shadows, shielding the alleyway from most of the light from the lumiflora contained in the sky. He had the growing sense that the alley was somehow trying to shake him off some hidden trail. He was forced to walk down two more crumbling staircases to stay along the snaking narrow path. Finally, Tully stumbled upon a small wooden door that resided under a blinking neon sign depicting a giant squid fighting a sperm whale. The sign read, The Salty Squid, and owing to the fact that two of the squid's neon tentacles were faded, Tully thought that the whale might be the one winning. Any bar that's this out of the way has got to have something going for it. Tully pushed open the heavy door and entered the tiny pub. A small cloud of sawdust accumulated over his feet as soon as he stepped inside. A thick mahogany bar ran half the length of the pub, with brass hooks situated underneath. An assortment of faded leather barber chairs were situated towards the rear of the bar, with spittoons on one side and cigar ashtrays on the other. We're not open yet! Sorry, man. The, the door was open. I was just looking for something to eat. Wow! This is an awesome place you got here. Tully looked up and saw that the ceiling was completely covered with artifacts hanging by little hooks. A katana sword from the Muromachi period hung next to a Bugatti steering wheel from the 1929 Grand Prix. Further along the ceiling, he spied a red electric guitar signed by Keith Richards next to several ornate German beer steins with heavy pewter lids. But what really caught his eye was an exquisite nautical cleat hanging over the far end of the bar. Holy shit! Do you know what that... I... I thought that was just a legend. What are you talking about? Why are you... This... This cleat. It's... It's amazing. Do you know where this is from? The Wydar Galley. A pirate ship that went down in 1717 off the coast of Cape Cod. The captain, Black Sam Bellamy, was one of the wealthiest and nastiest pirates that sailed the seas, but he was also one of the most superstitious. And if I'm not mistaken... Yeah, see? Look here. If one takes the bottom of the cleat off, there's a gold coin hidden inside each one. <laughs> it was an offering to the sea gods to spare his ship from storm and calamity. Ha! I thought it was a legend. Well, here you go. One gold coin. Well, all my stars. Ha! <laughs> I'll be damned. All this time I thought it was an old piece of junk. Oh, I know some of the stuff here is priceless, but a lot of it... Well, let's just say it has more sentimental value. For a few centuries now, people come into my bar and want to hang their trophies on the ceiling. Yes, it makes them feel even more immortal. <laughs> so, how do you know so much about ships, Mr... Uh... Tully. Just Tully. You could say it's sort of my job, although with my luck these days it seems to be more of a hobby than a profession. Well, I appreciate it, Tully. I'm Angus, Angus McKay. Gold coins don't fall out of the sky often. This calls for a drink. What can I get you, sailor? I don't know. What do you got on draft? <laughs> we literally have everything, Milan. Mead, ambrosia, armagnac, wine, beer, champagne, bourbon, coca, tea, sake, soju, and scotch from every decade since 1630. Not to mention my own personal blend of Venosha. Whoa. Who the hell still drinks mead? Not too many. One chap named Byron has a real fondness for it. He stops in from time to time, but uh, haven't seen much of him lately. I have something for him, though. Got any tequila? Hmm. 
That's one we don't get very often. Just give me a moment. I think I might have something that... Ah, there she is. Casa Noble tequila. It's the Añejo. I hope that's all right. Uh, to put it mildly? Sure. How about in a glass with one or two rocks? Coming right up, Tully. Let's see if I have any limes. So tell me, what brings you down here? To the squid? Oh, I was just looking for a bite to eat. I'm freaking starving. I couldn't find anything. No, 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 you dumb hungus. Here. Here in Leviathan. Oh, oh. Leviathan. Well, um, it's kind of complicated. I'm sort of here because of a girl. Of course you are. <laughs> it's always a girl, mate. <laughs> How's the tequila? Oh, man. It's the spot. Hey, you don't have any... Uh... Bar food? Bob grub? I'll heat up some bangers and mash. In the meantime, you can nibble on these if you want. What the hell are these? Squid chips! No, no thanks. I oh, don't... for the love of Jiminy Cricket. You're not going to insult the barkeep who's opening his tavern early for the likes of you and throwing free liquor down your sorry gullet and not try one of the house specialties, are you? Well, I guess I could try one. Now, there's a brave soul. <sighs> Holy shit! These things are spicy. Ah, the burn comes from a relish I make with Dorset Naga peppers. Very hard things to come by. I'm very glad to hear that. <coughs> How about a beer to get this lava out of my mouth? <laughs> Coming right up, sailor. This here's a nice pilsner from a small brew house outside of Budapest I like. Whew, thanks. Hey, Angus, you got yourself a good bar here. Why are you so tucked off to the side? Wouldn't business be better if you were on one of those big boulevards? What exactly do you mean by business? You know, customers. People coming in and... I'm paying for drinks! <laughs> no, Tully. You're still thinking like a mortal. Customer implies some sort of payment. But don't you use money here in Leviathan? Oh, I've got tens of millions sitting in some Cayman bank account, but that's all back up on the surface. Money doesn't matter in Leviathan. We don't have any need for it down here. Only knowledge. Ha <laughs> ha! And a good sense of humor. But to answer your question, 400 years ago, the salty squid used to be right on the main thoroughfare of Leviathan, right over on Tweedle Avenue. You moved the bar? They moved the street. Now Tweedle runs north and south over on the left. Four more new streets got built that are twice as wide. Ah, city's always changing. Always growing, too. Some say Evangeline is bringing too many people into Leviathan. But people are starting to lose the spirit of why we're here. Are they? The bartender leaned in close to Tully. Some say she's bringing more people down here for a reason. Not just the toughies for security. Though God knows we need them with everything that's going on. No, but others as well. We keep building out more of the Great Cavern down here, and I'm hearing more whispers about that mysterious Hayon project that keeps Evangeline so occupied these days. Must be a reason for all those people being brought down here. Oh, I suppose it doesn't matter. Evangeline is good enough to all of us. She can do as she likes. Long as I got beer in the cask and scotch in the barrel, things will be fine. So, Tully, tell me more about this girl of yours. What do you want to know? Do you love her? Well, I don't know. I mean, I've made love to her. Well, that doesn't exactly count, but at least that's half the battle. I mean, she's smart. She's insanely sexy. And we sort of, I don't know, we just sort of have this thing between us. I look at her and I, I see a partner, a really gorgeous one, and we've, like, been through a lot together, and I just... Shit, I, I just don't know what she wants. Something probably better than me. Oh, boy. 
I'm gonna make your tequila double. I could use it. Well, for the sake of the goddess, Tolly. At least half the damn fools down here become immortal because of love. Don't think Evangeline hasn't had her share of problems. Yeah? Well, sorry, but I'm not part of the club. Wait! Are you telling me that you're not immortal? Nope. Well, what about the damn girl you said you're in love with? Is she immortal? Yep. <laughs> Boy, you got yourself a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I guess I do. I wish that were the least of my problems. What else is wrong with your sorry ass? I owe a shit ton of money to some pretty shit people on the surface. A money problem? That's the smallest problem someone can have in life. Just tell Evangeline you need to lay low for a while. Stay down here 40 or 50 years. <laughs> You'll be amazed how all that stuff just goes away. The people you owe money to just forget or die themselves. Debts get consolidated, then written off. The money that you do have just sits in an account and grows exponentially. Then you go back up to the surface in a few decades and everything is fine. Sounds great, but I don't want to be a hundred and need a wheelchair and a colostomy bag when I go back up there. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry, Tully. I forgot that you're, you're, you're just a mortal human. Not just, I mean... You see, we just don't see a lot of your kind down here. My apologies, mate. <laughs> it's hard to remember what it was like being mortal, but I seem to recall that when I was, I, I spent an awful lot of time worrying about money, how to get it, how to save it, how to spend it. It all just seems pretty pointless now, living here in Leviathan. But I think back then, <laughs> it took up an awful lot of my time. I'm sorry, mate. I don't mean to be insensitive. You seem like a good man, Tully. These things have a way of working out. Thanks. Thanks, man. For the next few hours, Angus brought Tully a heaping plate of bangers and mash, as well as a very respectable plate of fish and chips. He also poured several more pints of pilsner and lager that were cheerfully finished, in addition to topping off Tully's glass of tequila a few more times. The two of them started to tell stories, and soon several hours had passed filled with tales of laughter and love, boasts and lies, victories and defeats, and most of all, good humor. The squid chips, however, remain next to Tully, defiantly untouched. Can I get you another? Nah, nah, I should be getting out of here. You uh, planning on staying long around these parts? I don't know, man. I got a feeling something bad is going to go down here. I'm not sure I need to stick around to watch it happen. Well, if you change your mind, there's always a bar stool here waiting for you, Tully. Thanks, Angus. Hey, uh, before I go, what was that thing you said earlier about Evangeline having her own share of love problems? I got the sense that there was some sort of history between her and Harlequin before. Ah, well that, my friend, is a longer tale, but a good one, worth telling. And I'm one of the only ones that knows it. Sit yourself back down and let me draw you another pint, and I'll tell you quite a story about Harlequin and Evangeline. A lonely dawn broke over the Himalayas, 
The enforcers had been trekking along the east face of Mount Shenglong for the entire night. The four monstrosities carried two large black pods between them. Inside one pod sat Miley and Oberlin Sinclair, while the other carried Whip Roberts. The interiors were heated to a comfortable 65 degrees, and supplemental oxygen circulated through the small compartments. In addition to the passengers, over 1,000 pounds of equipment were being carried up as well. But despite the size and obvious weight of the pods, the enforcers exhibited no signs of exhaustion or any regard for the freezing temperature and howling winds that buffeted them. They walked steadily, without misstep, in almost perfect synchronicity. Oberlin could see out of the small porthole window in his pod that there was no longer any mountain looming above them and deduced that they must be nearing their destination near the summit. Mount Shenglong was remote, frigid and desolate. So it came as a great surprise that the otherwise pristine ice field was littered with large metal signs that were hammered into the ice and displayed Chinese characters. Did you see all those signs that were posted? I did. What did they say? I saw that they were in Chinese, but they also had those big skull and crossbones on them. The others had photos of dead animals on them. It was a warning. A warning? For what? A deadly plague. A virus that could kill any mammal that comes into contact with the upper part of the mountain. Oh. Are we in the upper part of the mountain? Yes, Oberlin, we are. Do you think they're real or fake? The signs, I mean. We'll find out. The enforcers came to a stop and gently placed the pods on the ground. The tops of the pods opened slowly and frigid air rushed in, shocking the occupants' faces. Miley, Oberlin and Whip Roberts quickly donned their alpine gear and stepped out of the pods. Another 20 meters this way, just on the other side of the coal. The three of them and the enforcers walked further along the ridge until Oberlin felt he was literally bumping into the metal signs he saw. They were now littering the trail, increasing in frequency. It looks like someone's trying to tell us something. Or someone is trying very hard to keep everyone else away. As the team summited the last ridge, Oberlin felt uneasy walking next to the 12-foot enforcers with their nauseating red skin. So far, none of the behemoths had even glanced at him once. That's because they don't view me as a threat. I'm just inconsequential to them. Like an annoying little bug they can squash. To say they were unearthly was inaccurate, he thought. These grotesque enforcers looked like something that came from very deep within the earth and had no place on its surface. But Oberlin trudged on, trying to get his eyes to adjust to the glare of the morning sun reflecting off the glacial ice. Strangely, a bit further ahead, Oberlin thought he could see a tiny bit of color. Yellow, it seemed. Miley, do you see that? Ahead of them was the entrance to a narrow cave that had clearly been dynamited. Massive broken boulders were stacked three or four deep, blocking any entrance into the cave. Bright yellow tape with radioactive symbols on it covered the boulders that blocked the cave entrance. We're here. Wait, isn't it a bit dangerous to be going in there? What are you whining about now? Those radioactive signs on the tape covering the entrance. You know, I have this crazy thing about wanting to father children one day. You know, just like you must feel about lizards It's a other- ruse, you idiot. The Chinese government wanted to keep everyone away from this. Their biggest discovery, the alien artifact, the Starstone. They tried to use whatever propaganda they could think of to keep it safe before they could get it out. Is my father inside? Whit stared back at Miley without answering and then turned to two of the enforcers. You two, start moving these boulders out of the way. I want a clear path into the cave in 30 minutes. The entrance to the cave was completely obscured by the massive boulders. The enforcers wrapped their arms as far as they could around each boulder and hurled it into the ravine that stretched down in whiteness. Sometimes the enforcers would pick up the boulders and pause while their arms and legs trembled. 
Interestingly, it was the first time that Oberlin or Mai Li saw any evidence of a limit to the enforcer's strength. But less than 20 minutes later, a large opening was revealed, leading inward into the bowels of Mount Chenglun. Well, this is what you both wanted, right? So, go on in. The inside of the cave was wide and featured steel support beams on the ceilings and walls. Large machinery had clearly passed through here and deep tire grooves were still evident in the ground. Most of the cave walls seemed smooth and flat, but in some tiny areas the natural rock was still visible. Miley removed her flashlight and shone it on the wall, revealing etchings and intricate cave drawings where the original rock still was. But whatever had been there, whatever society had been established, had been bulldozed and pulverized by the aggression of some massive industrial machine. Oberlin stumbled on the loose ground, and Miley rushed over to put her arm around his shoulders. Are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. I'm just, I, I don't know. A little winded, I guess. Must be the altitude. Here, take this. What is it? Viagra. My Lee, this is hardly the time the to... altitude. We're at 23,000 feet. I can't risk you getting high-altitude pulmonary edema. Viagra will dilate your capillaries and allow more efficient oxygenation of your tissues. What about you? My Lee winked at Oberlin, popped the blue pill in her mouth, and turned to walk deeper in the chamber. Well, I, I didn't say I wasn't interested. The team continued to walk deeper into the cave, with each enforcer taking up almost the entire cavern. After bypassing an antechamber, the passage led to a round room sunken down some 30 feet. Access to the floor of this room was facilitated by a narrow passage that wound itself downward around the circumference of the room. At the bottom, in the middle of the floor, was a giant cube that looked like a podium for something massive to sit upon. This is it. This is where the Chinese found the Star Stone. It's such a shame. Those stupid Section 9 goons in the Chinese government were such imbeciles. Why? Because they desecrated this temple and destroyed a unique haven of Tibetan Buddhism? I mean, look at the shards of pottery what? that they... No. No, I don't give a shit about that. This, this temple is really a giant communications facility. And Section 9 thought that by dragging the Star Stone out of here, that they had somehow gotten their hands on the heart of this place. Wait, I don't understand. What are you talking All about? All they did was grab a snow cone off the top of an iceberg the size of Texas. You're not even close to making sense. This here, this pedestal. Section 9 thought the star stone that rested on top of this was what was worth stealing. <laughs> they never understood how big this facility really is. I've got a bad feeling about this. You, Enforcer 1, you're with me. Remove the doorbell from cargo and place it on top of the pedestal. What is the doorbell? But before Wick could answer, the first Enforcer reached in his gargantuan backpack that had been oversized with metal framing to fit his massive body. He removed a small piece of grey stone the size of a marble. What was odd was that the gigantic enforcers seemed to be struggling to carry it, like the tiny piece of stone weighed thousands of pounds. As soon as he placed it on top of the podium, the small stone ignited in a pulsing blue glow that sent shadows streaking up the round walls of the temple. What the what hell? What is that thing? It's not exactly a star stone, but it's able to mimic a good number of the original star stone's properties. It's going to serve as a key to allow us to access the more advanced parts of the facility. What facility? This was supposed to be a temple, a monastery for Buddhist monks to be able was to pray. Was built for Buddhist monks? There were just a bunch of thieving squatters. They hacked into the star stone using 
using meditation to eavesdrop. They stole power that didn't belong to them. This facility was built by Leviathan centuries ago to facilitate communication with the planet Sorax. Using this was how the immortals were able to order more star stones for Leviathan when they felt their immortality was slipping away from them. Suddenly, the pedestal started to vibrate, and a tremor seemed to reverberate through the entire mountain. Showtime! The podium slowly started to lower itself into the ground, going so low that it disappeared into the floor of the chamber. Oberlin could hear rock grinding somewhere deep in the mountain as the cube totally vanished, leaving only a large square hole in the middle of the room. Oberlin approached the edge and saw only blackness in the hall, giving him no sense of where this massive stone block had disappeared. Enforcers, I need zip lines running straight down. Grab the 300 meter static lines and bring over the repelling gear. Now. The enforcers complied quickly, whipped through climbing harnesses and headlamps over to Miley and Oberlin. The enforcers held one rope in each hand to serve as stationary anchors as the heavy lines tumbled down into the darkness. My Lee quickly stepped into her harness and tightened it, while Oberlin fumbled more clumsily with his. Here, let me help I, you. I think I had it, I just... Actually, you have it backwards here. My Lee adjusted Oberlin's harness and cinched it tightly around his leg and waist before attaching a Petzl ATC repelling device to his and her own harness. Ready? We're ready. Then let's go save the world. And with that, Whit Roberts leapt into the large hole in the middle of the floor and into the darkness. Slow down, Oberlin. We're not even sure where this cavern bottoms out. I know, I know. I'm trying to slow this thing down. It just. Bring your right hand closer to your body. It's, it's working. Thanks. Miley and Oberlin repelled through the pitch darkness of the colossal cavern that was revealed when the Starstone podium lowered itself into the ground. They descended for several minutes, and the small bit of light that leaked out from the opening above had mostly dispersed. It felt like they were falling through space, with no reference point to orient themselves or discern where the bottom lay. Only Whip Robert's headlamp below gave some reference as to how much deeper within the mountain they would have to travel. Oh, and don't touch the... <sighs> Belay device. It'll be overheated from the rope friction. Thanks. Now you tell me. It'll be okay. I can see Wit's headlamp below us. It looks like he stopped. I think that... My God, Oberlin, look! Holy mother of Jesus. Oberlin directed his headlamp on the spot where Miley had pointed hers. To their amazement, a thick rectangular pillar stood beside them that was easily hundreds of feet tall. In the darkness, it had been difficult to discern, but Oberlin realized that they had been repelling next to this gargantuan object the entire time. Upon closer inspection, he could see that the pillar was covered with the same carvings of tiny bodies that the Starstone pedestal had, and then it struck him. This pillar is actually a huge transmitter, a giant antenna hundreds, maybe thousands of feet tall. The pedestal where the Starstone sat, that was just the very tip of this huge antenna. We only saw the top 0.1% of it. Whit said this whole place is an enormous communication station, hidden deep within one of the highest mountains in the world, where no one would disturb it, where you'd have the least atmospheric interference because of its height. My God, it makes sense it all now. It makes sense now. Heads up, I can see the ground coming up fast. 
Oberlin and Miley touched down on the floor of the giant cavern. Whit Roberts had already set up phosphorescent flares that illuminated the immediate area around them. The massive stone pillar stood in the middle of the room, soaring upwards hundreds of feet towards the small opening in the cavern roof from which they had descended. Strangely, the ground was constructed of corrugated metal, which surprised Oberlin, given the primitive nature of the monk's temple above them. The two of them approached Whit, who took a tablet computer out of his pack and stared off to his right. We need to go this way. What we're looking for is over there. And what the hell are we looking for? But Wit had already walked ahead of both of them towards the chamber on their left. Get your Glock out and keep the safety off. We may only have another two hours to live. What the hell are you talking about? Wit Roberts' extraction plan. Look at the pods we rode up on. Look at the enforcers. Those monstrosities weren't brought here to carry us up. They're here to be carrying someone else down. There's not going to be any room for us on the return flight, and door number 12 doesn't typically leave any witnesses. Oberlin swallowed hard and realized she was right. Miley was always right, and he cursed himself for not having her foresight in these dire situations. It made Oberlin feel helpless and dependent. Should have seen that coming. Got to start pulling my weight. Not much of a knight in shining armor. Damn it. Oberlin and Miley followed Wiss around a corner and entered a strange room that possessed its own illumination emanating from the ceiling. Workstations with holographic screens lined each side of the room, along with small silver spheres that hovered a few feet above glowing blue pads. But what left both Oberlin and Miley utterly speechless was the object that stood against the far wall, a sarcophagus. A giant mammoth sarcophagus, but unlike any Oberlin had ever seen in Egyptian exhibitions, this one was taller and far wider, like a giant fat Buddha 15 feet in height and over 20 feet wide. Oberlin wanted to touch it, but some deep part of him was unnerved by it, and he realized that for the first time in his life, he was looking at something that was distinctly not of this world. There it is. The largest keyhole on the planet. This is what will link us to Leviathan. But we need to hurry. It's almost time. Whit placed his knapsack on the ground and removed his cherished briefcase from within it. He knelt down beside it and began activating various switches within. After a moment, he turned to Oberlin. Okay, Rockstar, it's showtime. Time to live up to your end of the bargain. Give me the code for the frequency transponder. I told you that you'd get it when Miley got to see her father. Well, unfortunately, that can't happen until I'm able to contact the people that you spoke to through the briefcase. I need to let them know that we've arrived. Otherwise, we can't get to Miley's father or anyone else. Oberlin said nothing. I assure you that I am not bluffing. Well, funny you should say that because actually I was. What? Yeah, I was sort of bluffing you. You were going to shoot me back at the Tangula, and I needed to come up with something quick. Encoding the frequency transponder was the best concoction I could come up with in short notice. (laughs) I'm just relieved you actually bought it. And before you start thinking it's okay to shoot me now, you should know that I'm holding a Glock in my pocket. The safety is off, so don't do anything stupid. And even if you manage to cap me first, Miley will have a bullet in your head in a second. I will. Hmm... Quite impressive, Oberlin St. Clair. I still want to kill you, but for the moment you've earned my professional respect. Nice bluff. Now stand back and behave yourself. I've got important work to do. Whit continued to manipulate the controls of the briefcase, and after several moments, Oberlin could hear the sound of a radio transmission coming through. Triton? Triton, this is Ganymede. Do you read me, over? This is Triton. I read you, Ganymede. All the pieces are in play. Packages are clean. I'm about to open Charon. 
Is your location secure? Wit looked around the chamber and stared hard at Oberlin and Mai Lee. Location secure. Let's pay the ferryman. The massive doors on the front of the keyhole slowly swung open, and Oberlin squinted his eyes against the massive flood of intense blue light that filled the chamber. The light pulsed rhythmically, and suddenly Oberlin felt that the situation was growing rapidly out of his control. What the hell is this thing? I don't know. It must be some sort of portal, a link to another world. In the middle of the keyhole, the hot blue light began to darken, and slowly an inky blackness filled the center, giving the keyhole the appearance of a giant menacing eye peering outwards. And then, just as suddenly, the blackness cleared, and Oberlin could peer through to the other side of the keyhole, like looking through a telescope bordered by shimmering blue light. On the other side of the keyhole stood four figures. On the left side was a tall man wearing a white robe and white hood. On the far right stood a Chinese man that Miley instantly recognized as her father. But in the middle was the strangest sight Oberlin Sinclair had ever seen in his entire life. Two tall, slender beings, towering at least a full foot above everyone else, stood between Dr. Sui and Bennu. They were clearly not human. Their skin was completely blue and prickly, and their large, wide-set eyes were a deep orange with no evident pupils. Oberlin felt a cold sweat starting to form when he realized that neither of these creatures possessed any mouths. And yet, there was something about these beings. He could feel them, almost hear them and their orange eyes seemed to blaze with menace. We are ready to be rescued. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi, For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com, or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.